Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. And every fortnight I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I talk to Neil DeShaco, who runs his studio, Neil DeShaco Architects, in London. We talk about his recently completed project, Sunslice House. The home is located in Cambridge in the UK and is a renovation and extension of an existing semi-detached Victorian property. It was designed for a family to work from home and to homeschool their children. Considering it was completed at the start of 2020, that was either complete luck or excellent foresight on behalf of the clients. Neil has added a single-storey brick extension that wraps around the side and the rear of the existing building and creates a stunning new open-plan kitchen facing onto the garden. The companion to the brick extension around the house is the spa building at the end of the garden that is clad in charred timber. What is really unique about this project is the open-plan kitchen space and the roof that slopes up towards the garden with two slices of glass along either length of it. An excellent use of form, natural light and materials. If you'd like to find out more about Sunslice House, you can see images of the project on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and you can find out more about Neil and his studio at neildeshaco.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Neil. Um, thank you for joining another architecture podcast. Oh, hi, George. Thanks for having me. Um, so today we're going to be talking about one of your more recent projects, um, Sunslice House, um, which comes on the back end of a long line of, of beautifully designed homes that you've done. I just wondered whether um, it would be good for the listener, that, uh, for anyone that doesn't know the practice, maybe to just give a little bit of an introduction to, to who you are. Okay, yeah, um, we are a small London-based practice. Um, we specialise in designing homes, um, residential homes for kind of uh, private clients. Um, this project is outside of London. It's in South Cambridge, and it forms um, a, a this, you know part of a semi-detached house, uh, which is set back quite a fair distance from the street. And who who's the who are these people? Like how did how did they come across your practice? What was their connection? We were shortlisted for an award um, for Don't Move Improve, which is a kind of London exhibition of um, residential projects that uh, you know on uh, it's kind of focused on the London area. It's kind of a competition. One of our projects uh, called the Brackenbury House was shortlisted. And the clients had seen it and they'd liked our use of light um, and space in that house and they contacted us. And and what were they looking for then? So, they, I mean, maybe if we describe the existing property and just the, the context that you were working in. So the the project in, well, I'll explain the project in, in uh, Hammersmith that they saw. It was a three-story, it was also a three-story semi-detached house and we had a basement there and the way we managed to get light into the basement is quite innovative in the sense that we had a, a glass floor set up against a glass door, which then opened onto the courtyard. And just, you know, through lining up specific elements um, in, in the house, we were able to get light to penetrate deep into this basement. And they were quite impressed with that. Um, and I think the, the, the sense of materiality, it was a very pared back house. I think we only used three materials in the whole project and they quite liked that. So they 
they contacted us. Um, I think they contacted several architects um, and shortlisted us. And we went to see the house. It was pretty run down. Um, it wasn't in great condition. And at the time, they had two children and they were, they were about to have a third. And they wanted to have a house that had a, a study because uh, so, both um, parents work from home and they also wanted to homeschool their children. So we had to design a homeschool space for, for three children. Um, they also wanted a leisure building at the end of the garden um, that would have a, a gym and a sauna uh, and a, a relaxation space um, uh, yeah, for them to kind of relax and unwind on the weekend. And what kind of, I mean, that sounds like just a great brief to sort of be starting out with. You've dealt with kind of quite a few different briefs, I'm sure, in, in your career. But what was it like this one, like a kind of initial reaction? It was, it was actually a, a great brief. Um, we, we helped them write it. But actually, to be fair to them, they had done a lot of thinking about the brief themselves. Um, I think it was over about 25 pages long. Wow. Brief, which, yeah, it's, it's, a bit, it's very rare that we get such a well-written brief, and it was very specific. But within within that, there were lots of options that we had to explore. Um, and the you know there, there were some things that we didn't think would be suited for this property. For example, one of the things they initially wanted was a swimming pool, um, but then they you know they wanted to have a vegetable garden, and we were, we were kind of trying to marry these two. Uh, things that you know, trying to keep as much garden space as possible, and um, and, and probably not go through the expense and uh, of adding a swimming pool. Um, so it was quite a fluid brief, although it was quite precise. It was more a conversation starter, um, and and I remember it being more of a narrative, really, as well, rather than uh, you know a list of things that had to happen. It was it was more of a kind of conversational piece, the way it was written. I was thinking with with projects like this where it's an existing building that you're working on extending, it's always really interesting to see what's the kind of context of what typically has been done to these houses. And I've kind of noticed that it's a semi-detached house. It's a Victorian-era property. And I think pretty much all the other houses that are in that vicinity, it's all of traditional glass conservatory on the back and maybe a sort of side building with a with a pitched roof. Were they kind of quite clear that they didn't want or was was something like that already there, or were they clear they just didn't want that that kind of approach? No, there, there was no extension. I mean, there was an outrigger um, that housed a very old and dilapidated kitchen, um, which they wanted to remove um, because it was kind of jarring with the the beautiful symmetry of the of the house. Um, we knew from the start that they both loved um, very contemporary modern architecture, and uh, that they weren't going to go for something kind of uh, traditional or pastiche. Um, I think they were looking for something quite exciting and, and quite new. Um, so, and, and also something that exploited the use of light. You know, I mean, obviously all these glass conservatories have, you know, it's very small panes and, you know, they, they aren't kind of designed in accordance with the building. You know, there's no kind of relationship between them. And I, I think they really wanted whatever we designed to evolve, looks like it evolved out of the, the form of the existing building. Well, that's, I think that's the, the key of the, the project, particularly from the outside is that relationship between um, old and new. And I know it's a term that's used a lot in, in architecture, but here there is very clearly your kind of interpretation on this project as you've kept 
the main bulk of the the brick building and you've created this new wraparound that's almost kind of sculptural do you want to maybe sort of describe where these kind of ideas started coming from of of how you're approaching this house in terms of form yeah so i think in terms of architectural influences on this project um, megan had come from california um and we had had quite a lot of discussions about franco dried houses that she'd seen um the materiality and form of them um and we spoke about schindler and and really a lot of discussion within the kind of precedent centered around the kind of you know west coast modern kind of houses um james had grown up in the local area as well but he had also very strong views on the kind of materiality of the house um and they were looking for something kind of modest and not too showy um but then something that also would allow the the host building to retain its integrity so they weren't looking for something uh that formed a kind of jarring counterpoint to the house like for example our blackridge house um was something uh, we had done before which is a, a black charred timber box that was um, stuck on the the back of a um a worn a house with a worn estate in Walthamstow that wasn't what they were looking for they were looking for something that was uh, they would look at it like it had grown out of the existing house so the way we the way we started was um we just kept building models you know we 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 generally start building lots of physical models so we first built a physical model of the site and then we built a model of the house and then we studied started studying the uh, orientation and the way the sun moved around the house and it became very clear to us at the beginning that the existing house would overshadow the north facing garden and we had done quite a few north facing houses before and this is kind of a common problem um, you know you you design the house to kind of open out to the garden and that garden's overshadowed so one of our models actually had um an extension went out from the rear facade by about 6 meters and we hadn't we hadn't finished building the rest of the model but we had noticed that as the sun moved around the house the 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 light would hit the the vertical face of the of the building and bounce back into the house so what we did was we created a very modest single story extension that face the street the, the whole extension is single story mm. but it rises it rises up towards the north um and the it has a vaulted roof um an angled vaulted roof and then at the top of the vaulted roof is um two rows of the skylights that run east west and um where the vaulted roof meets the house is another set of skylights that run east west so when the sun is at its highest point um the light bounces through the top skylight back into the house um and also when it's at its lowest point um you can kind of see up through the the skylight at the existing house so the the form of the existing house uh, is is remains completely intact and then this new form it's almost like it's kind of coming up from behind the house and scooping and grabbing the sunlight from the front and kind of pulling it right into the back of the house yeah the strange thing is from the garden it seems very monumental because it's very mm. flat it's a very flat architecture um and but actually when you go inside it there's the ceiling plane seems to float between two bits of glass there's no obvious place where it's supported so you've got two planes the existing facade of the house and you've got the, the facade facing the garden and then you've got this angled roof that's got a cedar on it and you know just the glass separates it so 
yeah, it's it's <laughs> inside. It's much more light and um, mm. transparent than it, it looks like from the outside, and we quite like that as an idea. Was there anything at this kind of stage when you were kind of building models and things and trying out stuff? Um, anything like totally outrageous that kind of got discarded early on? Totally uh, yes. different to what was built. Yes, there were two really um, crazy ideas. One was a courtyard in the middle of the house. So what we <laughs> what we wanted to do was um, there's a very long corridor from the front door to the to the garden, and so one of the things we did is like right at the end of the corridor we had this outside space that you'd have to maneuver around mm-hmm. in order to to get to the kitchen um and we thought it was a great idea but the clients didn't um <laughs> and, <laughs> and then uh, the other thing we did was um we we had this kind of core in the house it's got like all the utility spaces um and we we made this kind of option where you could circulate around it so it was mm-hmm. almost like an island within the house and uh, we called it the in- infinite loop uh, scheme um but then obviously we found out that megan's dad used to work for apple um which is i think was one infinite loop um is the street address or something like that but anyway it was there were quite a lot of um interesting things some we didn't actually show the clients as well like um james has got his um phd in mass um and <laughs> we designed this incredibly mathematical scheme based on the golden section and like permeations of the golden section um and then we overlaid it with a kind of a sun sun diagram so they'd like a different points of the the day like the sun would come in through different apertures um mm-hmm. and so the whole the whole roof was um, perforated and would let sun so it all would act like a sundial um and then we realized that was not something we would show the <laughs> so it didn't even make it to the meeting. So, well, the, the, the thing is, it was just, we knew they wanted something quite modest and something that seemed effortless. Um, mm. And I think that was one of the, the words that they, they used when we um, spoke to them. Like, you know, they wanted to make it look as if we weren't trying too hard, um, mm. I think. And so every time something grew in terms of le- levels of complexity, um, you know, at the back of my mind, I was like saying, okay, well, you know, keep stripping it back, keep stripping it back. And then we wanted to strip it back until there was nothing else we could strip back. And um, it also came out of conversations we'd had with the clients about why they love John Pawson so much and the whole idea of the minimum. That was that was a kind of real touchstone for us, you know, um, and a common ground and kind of understanding the beauty of some of the things that, you know, John Pawson has highlighted in his book Minimum as well. Um, so uh, I think all of these things convalesced in, into the simplicity of the scheme as it as it is now. That's interesting. I mean, some of the terminology, and this is terminology coming from the clients as well. Um, I mean, these are clearly must be clients very interested in architecture before they even approached you. Are they generally oh, definitely. architecture? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but- I mean, that was quite daunting, I have to say. Um <laughs> I mean, particularly their experiences um, and things they spoke about in terms of um, going to see um, projects in America, um, you know, and so we felt that whatever concept we presented to them, you know, needed to be fairly robust. Um, So, um, and it it wasn't, I don't think they were after something that necessarily had like a strong image. 
they I think they were after something that you'd have to experience to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, that, that that was something I felt. I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong on that, but that, that was something I wanted to do. Um, yeah, because I mean, you use the terms um, modest and effortless. Um, and I mean, some of the other terms as well, I think would describe maybe you'd be expecting to see a house that's actually very minimalist. I wouldn't necessarily describe this as as minimalist. It's got a lot more sort of texture and dynamic going on. Um, it's not totally pared down, is it? There's yeah, no. So I I guess I've got a different take on the word minimalism. Mm. Um, I, I I don't necessarily think minimalism denotes um, white cubes with. Mm-hmm. You know nothing in it. I think it's an attitude about what's essential and what's not essential. Yeah. And um, so w- I think what you need to do is you kind of set up a narrative in terms of um, the story that you you're telling, and then the elements that you, the ingredients that you put in, uh, can be quite uh, simple and subtle. Um, and so, uh, like you know, even though we're using very textured materials, um, they you know, they're not there to be substituted by, say, white plaster or, or mm-hmm. you know, they are what they are. They're, they're kind of natural in their kind of rough state. And that was actually something that was quite important to us, So, um, the, was, which was the materiality. So we had done a house um, in Hammersmith uh, a couple of years ago using handmade bricks uh, made by a company called Peterson in Denmark. And um, we just loved the imperfection of it. Um, but actually they are quite homogenous in a way because they're made of clay. Um, and so there was this play between the things that are imperfect and intransient with the things that are quite engineered. And so in plan, um, the the house, the existing shell of the house is, is, is quite easily visible. Um, but when you, when you turn in the corner and go around the corridor into the extension, um, the the walls are placed at a kind of a centrifugal pattern, so they they open initially into the kitchen dining room space and then out into the garden. So there's a there's a sense of movement, um, and also the roof because it angles out towards the garden and funnels you out. So that gesture we felt was quite powerful and quite emotionally charged, just in its pure form, and we wanted to soften it by giving it giving it's a material warmth. Um, so that came out of the um, herringbone floor pattern mm-hmm. um, and the use of the oak floor. And then also the brick is highly textured, but it only goes up to a certain height, which is about 2.4. And then everything above that is is white plaster. So there's almost like a horizon line between mm-hmm. um, the imperfect and the, the perfect, in a sense. I, I know it sounds quite poetic to, to say that, but it was something we were thinking about throughout the, the project. And and this balance is taken out into the garden. So, for example, the, the Peterson bricks are used within the landscape um, as stepping stones in the garden, which then transitions to the outbuilding, which is made of um, charred timber. Well, I think it'd be, it'd be great to sort of take a walk, a kind of audio walk through the house, because I think there's, I mean, the thing you're saying about the horizon line and and... I mean, I, I love that term. We often kind of refer to it as a datum line and this, yes. you know, tying in a space together, but a horizon line. I'm going to switch now and use that from now on because it's much better. Um, <laughs> but I, maybe if we walk through, because there's so many things that I want to pick your brains about um, and and would like to sort of find out more about. 
but maybe if we sort of start as you would go through the house, because the first thing I think that's interesting about this house that I'd like an answer to um, is as we're approaching it, we see the traditional form of this house. It's got a tall kind of vertical gable brick building space at the side and your kind of brick extension kind of makes its appearance at the side. Very subtle, um, not really showing anything to the street, but the house has got two entrances. So there's the the original entrance with a little veranda, but you've put this new entrance on the side of the house. Can you maybe talk through that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of in partial countryside. Um, and the original house has a very beautiful lead uh, porch, um, which faces the street. And we wanted to keep the hierarchy of the main entrance, which is kind of underneath this beautiful porch. And there's an axial line going from the front gate um, through the front door all the way through to the house. But we wanted to create a kind of secondary entrance for the family when they kind of come in after the rain and they've got muddy boots and muddy uh, wet coats and things and they can kind of take their uh, clothes, you know, their coats and boots off and, and put it in a kind of mudroom um, and then kind of go through to, to the main house. So the, the sense of entry was quite difficult, I have to say, to <clears throat> kind of plan in the house because you wanted to kind of keep that hierarchy uh, of the main entrance but then create this kind of second entrance. The way we managed to do it in the end was we took some of the floor away um, above the front door and there's a double volume space um, which the clients then filled with these beautiful David Tribbage uh, light fittings. Uh, these are kind of um, handmade uh, lights and there's about five round pendants that kind of go up through this double volume space that glow. So when you go through the main entrance, which is, it's very tall, it's a double height space, but when you go through the secondary entrance, it's about 2.2 high and it's just got um, space for jackets and boots. So it's a, mo- a lot more of a utilitarian uh, kind of entrance because of all the practical storage and, and yes, sort of like, yeah. kind of like a muddy boots entrance, that kind of thing. It is. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then, I mean, actually, there's kind of three entrances because there's a, there's also a door, of, kind of a secret little door off the back of the kitchen as well. Yes, that's, uh, that's to take the bins out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean... I've got the plan up in front of me here because I love your building plans and the way you kind of think about the navigation through through old properties and, and extending them. And so you've got these two kind of axes, the entrance coming in off the side of the house, uh, kind of running in line with the stairs that, that run across the house. And then the, the front entrance that just literally makes a slice right through, right down the middle. As you come in, that entrance, there seems to be a very clear conscious choice to actually terminate that view from the entrance going through to the house and not doing the kind of literal thing that I think most architects would do of we're going to create a view of the garden um, from the entrance. Is that, is that a practical move or is that a very conscious design decision? It's a, a bit of both really. So one of the things that we do is we, we try and use kind of the poetic to, to shape our choice of flow, how things flow. And one of the, building blocks of the poetic and is um, the sense of surprise um, and also the sense of anticipation. So the the main entrance kind of sits on a, a north-south diagonal. Um, like you quite rightly say, you know, could have quite easily just extend into the extension and into the garden. But the skylights sit uh, perpendicular to that and they run east-west. So what we realized is that no matter what time of day you arrive, there would be a diagonal um, 
percent of light um, kind of cutting through that that wall, which uh, would, in a sense, echo the angled roof that um, opened out into the garden. So although the house is very orthogonal, the use of light is very diagonal, mm-hmm. um, which kind of gives that sense of dynamism that we wanted, um, along with the kind of centrifugal nature of the walls. Um, but we just we didn't want to reveal the extension from day one. Um, we wanted you to discover it. Um, and we wanted there to be a threshold between the old and the new. So kind of as you go around the corner, you you pause and you recalibrate yourself and then you kind of go into a space that is, um, say, three times bigger than some of the other, other rooms in the house. And when you talk about kind of discovery and surprise, do you think those kind of things are important for the day to day? So for a family that's living there and every day they're coming down these stairs and, and going into the kitchen. Do you think that brings uh, something? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we tend to do that in a lot of our projects, um, and I've done it in my own house. And I think that it's a way of <laughs> it's a way of kind of having gratitude for the unknown or, or things that mm-hmm. you you can't really foresee. Uh, so when something happens and you get a sense of surprise, it just means that things everyday things aren't taken for granted. You know, whether it's a shaft of light or sound or uh, some air, a gust of air coming through a different space. It's it's just changing the way you see time in a way, and it, it kind of makes you grateful for um, the unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a kind of philosophy that I'm... I don't know if you ever visited Maker's House, but they did an interview with them recently on the podcast, and a, a similar approach from them, but maybe more kind of extreme as in right at the entrance, they created that kind of compact, dark entrance... Yes. which could have easily been a big sort of light-filled view through to the spectacular house they designed. But almost like entering a club, there's this kind of mystery of navigation to get yes, through to the dance floor. Yeah, there's this incredible experience I had when I was in Mexico City and I went to see a house by Louis Barragan. And, you know, you're walking down the street uh, in Mexico and it's really, really noisy. And you see the door of the house and you, you go through the door and it's completely black when you go in. There's no light. You have to, It's an, almost an airlock. Um, and you go through this door into this black space and then through another door, and the floor in front of you is black lava. Um, but once you close the door behind you, it's completely quiet. Mm. And it's it's almost like a sanctuary. You know, it's you, you shut off from the world um, behind you, and you've entered a new space, and your emotions are – there's a transition of your emotions, and you, you feel differently. Mm-hmm. Now, when you before you sort of come in from these these hallways and into the kitchen and wrap around, you've got the you've referred to it as this utility block that's that's clad in timber. What's important to you about that aspect of the design of it being clad in timber? Um, there's two important things. Um, one, I mean, they kind of it houses the boiler room, the, the laundry facilities, the guest toilet, and so on, um, and they are not spaces that they, they kind of the serve spaces, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, the, the, the spaces, sorry, the servant spaces. So there's a hierarchy in kind of in what they are. So we made sure that all the doors and the paneling that go around them were, were flush. Um, and so although it feels like the core of the house, it's wrapped in a very nice natural material. And within that material, there's small niches in which the clients have placed sculptures. So for example, they've got a very beautiful um, sculpture, uh, of a bird that's kind of carved in wood that's, that's beautifully lit. Um, 
and you know it's so it's the wood against woods but there's a kind of narrative about the kind of use of natural materials that's carried out throughout the house and then the the front of the house is part of its kind of quite traditional plan form with the, the bay window and um and there's the living rooms and some workspaces there interestingly they're quite some of the living spaces of the house there's no massive kind of lounge where you'd expect the tv and cinema to be most of that space seems to be given to the the kitchen and the dining what were the kind of thoughts there in terms of the plan form of living spaces so the two front rooms uh the larger of the two has the home office for the parents who work from home and so just from a pure kind of utilitarian point of view you know to get the two desks in um and the kind of surveillance of the street um we wanted to make that space the the home office um the other space um on the other side is is much more cozy and it sits underneath the porch um and it actually had quite a lot of the existing period features retained whereas mm. the other space didn't so we restored that room to uh you know to to what it was before uh the you know it had a working fireplace um so that's kind of like a cozy reading space um you know there's no tv in there and the parents can kind of go there and and you know read a book and sit by the fire listen to music so it's more of a kind of calm relaxation space within the house um next to that is the uh kind of a music room and library uh, which we call the anti space um which is quite small i think it's only about 3 meters um wide by about 3 meters deep um and it's got a piano and music books and, and you know all all the books for the children and then next to that space is the kind of very small tv room with one sofa um my feeling is that the parents don't watch that much telly mm-hmm. um and um yeah so i think you know the 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 kind of dining and kitchen space is really the heart of the home mm. i mean that's quite it's a nice refreshing thing to see as well um it really has been given over to that i mean the dining space takes kind of center stage um so as as we come through then to the the house we're kind of facing this the wall at the end of the hallway which kind of screens off the view that you would have got through to the garden but this is the first point where you kind of then experience one of the sun slices and it's a huge glass sheet of glass or glass roof light that's right against the back of the the house um maybe what what was the kind of idea here of sort of separating this part and um and how did you kind of design this form when you were kind of modeling it um we yeah so we we that came out of um physical models but um before i had worked on this project i'd actually worked um for um, a company called Ellis and Morrison which is a, a london based practice and we had i'd worked on um, st pancras station and one of the design ideas that we had on that station was you know the, the beautiful um brick facade of that station we wanted to be able to see it as you kind of came in through the western mm-hmm. ticket hall um and so on on that design we had with place the skylight as well and i just like the effect of along a circulation space you can see the profile of the original house and there's mm-hmm. actually a line where the edge of the house kind of comes through and forms the junction of the wall of the pantry and so that's it's kind of a way of kind of playing homage to the existing facade and also just making that facade sing uh in a way because there's nothing 
breaking your visual continuity of that space. But also it does two quite practical things. One is it lets light into the um, utility room where the family do uh, you know, all their ironing and washing. Mm-hmm. So even if you're in the, when you're in the center of the house, there's a clear story window and we get borrowed light from that, um, from that uh, skylight into that space. Um, and the other um, aspect is it illuminates that wall um, on the back of the house, so the, which is where we kept the existing brick. Um, which then kind of has a, a, a beautiful golden glow to it um, mm. most time of the day. So you get the sense of depth, you know, you get this sense of, you know, foreground, middle ground and background within the house um, through the use of, of light. And I think it's, that's such a thing that's just missing so often from large extensions that people can put onto the back of their homes and just creating more darkness actually in the heart of the house by doing it. Um, whereas here you've, you've, You've almost created a, a space that feels like it's it's cross lit, even though it's all just using um, roof lights. Yeah. Also, the the door at the end of that glass um, corridor, you know, the kind of the skylight is is a glass door as well. So even as you turn around the corner, you're seeing through a glass door. Um, and you know, although you use that door to you know, take out the bins, yeah. you know, you're still getting a, a beautiful view at the end of the corridor. Um, you know, into the kind of side lane of the house. So yeah. the idea is like lining up openings with circulation uh, uh, kind of allows these kind of extended views um, throughout the house. And then we've got the, I mean, probably the most distinctive feature, I think, of this this house is then the way you sort of designed this space sculpturally and the slope of the roof. Um, and I love how it's just, it's hanging there like a, it's like a blade kind of running across the space and it's got mm-hmm. natural light either side and and it kind of slopes up towards the garden rather than like if we really talk about it kind of traditionally extensions like this would be done with a pitched roof leaning from the main sort of bulk of the house leaning down towards the garden and this is completely turning it on its head um was this something that you when you were designing it with a kind of with the clients completely sold on this was this a kind of instant moment design yeah it was definitely i mean the even before we had finished building the model of this option, I knew this was the way it would work. Um, but we, we <laughs> but even when we did that model, we ended up building several options of that model. So um, at the the final design has got um, a large pitch roof over the kitchen and the dining room, and then a, a smaller pitch roof over the home school. Um, so originally it was one continuous sloped mm-hmm. roof. Um, and then there was, um, uh, you know, then we, we broke it up into three little roofs and, you know, we, we kept playing with it until we could get the hierarchy of the spaces right. Um, but it, it reminded me a lot of a, a building I'd seen by Dan Merkitt, um, which uh, was a visitor center um, out in, which we had actually been to visit the, the year before and the way it kind of opened out into the, into the landscape. And what I liked about that, building was it was just very simple you know it was just a simple gesture kind of opening out and embracing the the landscape um so that's kind of what we wanted to do really is just retain that simplicity of of form so we've got saint pancras station we've got (laughs) glenn glenn merkins um where do where do frank lloyd wright and schindler come into it well, I think the the sense of dynamism that Frank Lloyd Wright has uh, yeah. in his plans is is very strong. I mean, you think of Tanners and West, um, the way Frank Lloyd Wright made place in a desert, you know, using kind of simple geometry, 
working on the diagonal. Um, I think that was quite a big thing that we were looking for. Obviously, we, that wasn't the exact thing we took from Frankfurt, right? But it was a principle of using the geometry um, and, and making a house up like that. I think with, with um, people like Schindler, I think the, the materiality, you know, the, the purity and the, 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 the number of materials that they've used um, was something we wanted to uh, explore as well. Was there a particular project of Schindler that, that was influential? No, no, just, I, well, I guess maybe his house. I mean, that's only the <laughs> only one I've seen, really. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so you've designed a house that's d- designed for, for working from home and for homeschooling. Um and built it kind of before it was the in-demand thing to have. Um, maybe if you can touch a little bit on the um, on the, the study areas for the children in the dining room. Yeah, so <laughs> that's true, actually. Um, well, the, the, the client went to do homeschool their children. I mean, it was, just some, it, was, it was a request that they had long before the kind of COVID thing hit. And they wanted the space to relate to the garden as well and kind of have the kids you know, visible from, from the kitchen and dining room. So that's kind of a big well, open plan space, but I didn't want it full of, you know, um, stuff. <laughs> so we designed these three individual desks where the desk can kind of change in, in height uh, as, as the children grow. And each cubicle essentially has got the individual child's kind of learning stuff for, for the day. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how it's set up. You know, it's kind of behind this um, this cupboard where, you can kind of slide the doors away and then you know, each child can kind of have their own booth. Mm-hmm. It, was quite, it, was, it was quite complicated to do, I have to say. The, I can, the I can imagine. It's very bespoke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably the most complicated piece of um, joinery we've ever designed. Um, we had to prototype it quite a bit, actually. But they are, I mean, it, I mean, it's a great space to study. They're at the opposite end of the, the large open plan space at the back, so there's there's a linear kind of plan of kitchen, a dining table, and then the study spaces. And all of them overlook um, this incredible garden design. So it was Jane Brocklebank that you were working with for the... Yeah, Bro- yeah Jane Brockbank. And yeah, so I've known Jane for a number of years and um, she designed my garden. Mm. Um, my, my, my house was uh, designed... Well, it was being built, I think, at the same time we were designing um, the Sunslice house. And... Yeah, so, you know, just talk to Jane about how the garden gets designed and, you know, the, the relationship between the house and garden. There were there were a lot of discussions about the materiality and planting. We we didn't design the garden. You know, it was completely designed by her with the clients. Um, but, you know, we explained what the house was doing. So she, she kind of knew what the character of the garden needed to do, in a sense. And did any of that kind of design influence you? Like and kind of vice versa. Uh, yes, it did. So, um, for example, in the spa area, um, so at the end of the garden, there's an outbuilding and it's got a, a relaxation room, which has got a, um, a wooden um, Japanese soaking tub, a uh, place for meditation. It's got a shower. It's got a sauna. Um, we wanted to conceal the 
the, the kind of elements of the outbuildings so they wouldn't be seen from the house. So mm-hmm. the landscaping was quite important. You know, we created a, or Jane created a, a meadow garden with um, hedges that screen that space with a fountain so you could hear the, the gurgling water. Um, the choice of materiality was was key. You know, we, we spoke about what the, you know, it was it was going to be a timber-clad building, but, you know, what timber would it be? Um, we, we ended up using Soshigi band because we, Within the context of the gardens, there were already black outbuildings, um, you know, kind of old coach houses and, mm-hmm. and so on that had been there from since the 19th century. So we took our cues from from that context. Um, but also, I like the idea that the Shoshiki band didn't you can't you couldn't see shadow on it, you know, it absorbed light. Mm. So it was almost seen as the antithesis of um, the Sun Slice House. And we made it very simple, um, but we, we did also put in two large skylights, you know, one over the shower, one over the changing room. So at least there's that kind of connection within those cellular spaces to the outside, you know, through the depth of light of trees and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but then the the interior is completely clad in sapili, which is a kind of reddish gold timber, um, and it's slightly lacquered. So it contrasts with the, the, the kind of matte black, um, kind of crusty, surface of the Soshigi band. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the, the soaking tub is made out of uh, timber and the, the sauna is made of spruce. And so there's, you know, it's a completely uh, timber-lined, uh, timber-clad building. I imagine the smells must be amazing because the, the garden, yeah. a lot of the garden is kind of wildflower, but then also the, the timbers and the natural materials that you're using in the spa as well. It must be quite uh, a kind of thing for the senses with the sound as well. Yeah, it is. And what Jane did, which I really like as well, was that as you move from the main house to the um, to the outbuilding, um, the York stone changes to the Pedersen brick, and then it changes to gravel. So you move beyond a, a, a formal lawn to four little vegetable allotments where there's a little greenhouse, and then you hit the meadow garden, and then you your footsteps crunch. Mm. So so although. <laughs> So again, it's this idea of a kind of sensory threshold. You know, mm-hmm. initially we're using light, but yes, the, the smells as you kind of go past the the vegetable patch where Megan's growing kind of strawberries and things. You do, yeah. There's a lot of herbs and things there. I, lo- I love that that idea of the the floor because I mean there are two two of the senses that I think are sometimes overlooked, or they're the kind of things that are they're not picked up because they're not Instagram friendly. They're not you know digitally you can't convey these things. Um, but the idea, so the pedestal and bricks, so they're going from the, the paving stones change in scale. They get smaller and smaller. And the pedestal is a, is a sort of nod to the extension. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we as a practice are kind of anti the, uh, although we are on Instagram, we're kind of anti the, the pinterification of um, mm. design. And so we, we tend to work with a kind of, uh, <laughs> it's kind of an irony since we are on Instagram. But um we we tend to work with uh, you know how people experience nature nature almost like kind of a phenomenological approach um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they always there's always this kind of nod to how um, the the kind of outside phenomena can inform your experience of architecture mm-hmm. whether it's a sense of taste or touch or sound um, you know so for example you know when I was designing uh, this house you know we had, we had built my house and it had a, a glass skylight over the shower. Um, so, you know, the, the shower is just tiles and sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Jane came to see it and she goes, it's all about sky, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but, yeah, I think that's something we try and imbue within our work. And so, yeah, so in a sense, like, it's quite hard to say, 
you know, or, you know, it might be photogenic, but then you, know, you need to kind of experience it. And I think that's really important in architecture. You know, it's almost like music. You know, you can't understand it just by looking at a, a sheet music. You've got to walk around it and, and mm. sense it. And what do you think this building is like to to walk around and and sense it? I I think it's very calming. Um, I think that it's very pleasing on the eye, and it does it does feel effortless through the effortless through the the um, limited palette of materials. Um, there's nothing really there that jars. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's quite calm. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit then about the spark? Because I mean, it sounds like an amazing part of the brief. What I like about it is. Um, like you mentioned, it's quite incongruous. It's, it, it doesn't have a clear, like you talked about the colour, but in terms of form, it doesn't necessarily have a clear form either. It's It kind of fills in the awkward shape that's left by by a conglomeration of garden fences. But that, is it? am I right in thinking there's also space behind it? You can look you look right through the spark. <laughs> no, that's, that's an optical illusion because we put a, a mirror on the, on the uh, back. That's what it is, uh, right. Yeah, but what's interesting is that we try, we came up with several options and all the original options were set away from the boundary mm-hmm. so that the, the building created these um, separate courts, uh, which is kind of a little homage to one of Louis Kahn's buildings. And, you know, how, but eventually we, we got rid of the courts one by one and that it became like a kind of a wall architecture in a sense, you know, mm-hmm. just a, a flat boundary that would then be almost uh, set parallel to the, the rear fence and then we carved into that um so it was initially very extroverted but by its formal nature but then it became uh sorry introverted because of the the it being nestled within the meadow garden and the landscaping um and was this a debated part of the brief you mentioned at the beginning about the swimming pool and kind of it being vetoed in place of the vegetable patch um, was yeah. there kind of discussions about what could or couldn't be included here for the spa? Yeah, definitely, because initially the clients had other ideas on how to use the, the garden, um, you know, and, yeah, the kind of, although it's a, it's a very large garden, you know, there was talk about greenhouses and swimming pools and things like that. Um, but But ultimately what we wanted the garden to have was, Kind of some distinct characters, you know. Um, so we wanted it to be, you know, to have a kind of stone area which was hard paved, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of formal lawn where you know, kids can run around, you know, um, the, the allotments where they could plant their vegetables and fruits. So, you know, <laughs> once we aligned all of those uh, functional aspects into the garden, there wasn't that much space, and it kind of kept pushing the the outbuilding further and further back towards towards the house. Um, so that's yeah, so that's how its form came into being. What was what do you think was the hardest thing to get right on this project? Apart from building um, the um, children's study cupboard, <laughs> I think the the relationship between the material of the extension and the house that was really a struggle. And um, we did lots of mock-ups of different shades of pedestal and brick, you know, grey, um, yellow, beige. I think that was quite difficult. Um, and then also we wanted to make sure that the coursing was completely random. Um, uh, so just I, th- I think the kind of getting the essence of that kind of raw materiality on, on the ground floor um, was, was quite tricky. What do you mean by the coursing being random? 
Um, so the every course, um, there's no it's a stratified coursing. Yeah, so every single brick is placed in a different because the bricks are 550 mil long. There's no uh, there's no no course repeats. Okay, um, so the builder and, loved, uh, the builder loved you then. Well, yeah, <laughs> we we went to we went to see quite a few um, uh, buildings with the with the contractor. This is our this is actually our third building with the same contractor, and um, the project architect um, kept drawing these um, elevations, and um, we'll go. No, no, there's a pattern here, and then he'd <laughs> he'd move the bricks over, and then, so there was this like. And, and then we were like really worried that James would spot the pattern because, you know, he's got this incredible mathematical brain and we're like, oh, no, 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 let's mirror it. No, 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 then it's like an inverse pattern. It's like, so yeah, so it was, it was quite tricky to do that. But what has come out of it now is it does really feel monolithic. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what's nice. I, I, I'm pretty certain if I go over there, James will go, he can spot a pattern. You know, like, I, I yeah. just, it's probably one that he's, he's picked out and it, it probably, might annoy him. <laughs> What's your kind of, if you had to pick a favorite aspect of this house, what would it be? Ooh. Um, the, yeah, there's, there's various parts of it. Um, I love the porch um, and the, the relationship between the porch and the front room. Uh, and I also love the um, the kind of entry into the, the, the dark spa because um, you kind of slope down the ground through the down past the meadow garden and then like the door handles kind of carved into the black so should you ban mm. um and like nothing's obvious and the roofs blaze um so it's at a slight angle to, which relates to the site but forms a cover to the um to the uh, to the to the door and uh you know i was <laughs> i was trying to kind of channel my inner Zumta after seeing, you know, his beautiful pavilion in, uh, in um, Hyde Park, you know, that, that beautiful I was going to reference there. that. I, was, I, was, I thought maybe there was an influence there because of the, the landscaping and the timber and the, that sense of calm and sound. That was something that really pervaded my, my sense and, you mm. know, the garden uh, that was inside, you know, and that, that really strong transition between the, you know, the landscape space of, of Hyde Park mm. um, and uh, you know, the, the kind of qualities of a spa um, that did really, you know, did really kind of cross my mind quite a lot. And, um, but we, we wanted to do something that would also then pay homage to the house. So it was, it was quite tricky, I think, but I, I, I like the, the blankness of that wall um, and that, the, you know, there's nothing there and it's, it's very quiet. Yeah. There's, but you've almost sort of get that from the back of the the main house as well with the brick and how it's. I really like how the it's such a tall vaulted space. This roof sloping right up, um, but actually the glazing is kept very low. It's not literal. It's not let's put it high and create view. And I think that's also an underestimated element. I think sometimes of house design, but then you get this strong band of brickwork above it, and the proportions just there's something that feels right about it. It's it's heavy. I think. I think I think there's a slight kind of paradox in trying to do something that's well designed that seems modest at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite, it's quite, <laughs> so it's quite a it's quite a hard it's quite a hard balance to do something that's confidently modest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> so I don't yeah I don't I don't really know how he how he did that. I think um, I think the clients were a really good touchstone actually on that. Um, 
And um, we didn't really want to, you know, do something that was too showy in mm. a way. And what's been their feedback? Have they kind of given you oh, that feedback they, of living in the place? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think they, they're really happy. Uh, they're really happy with the house. And, um, you know, I went over, well, obviously just before lockdown to see them. And, uh, you know, it sounds a weird thing to say, but I, but I cannot think of any other family living in that house. It's so bespoke really? to them. Mm. Yeah, it's just like, you know, after getting to know them really well and, you know, like it's – it's just so them and you know it's kind of oh, i don't know you know i haven't ever mentioned that to them but it it just seems like everything has its place in that house mm-hmm. um and it came out of quite challenged conversations about the logic you know like yeah i mean they weren't uh, except for the the kind of crazy courtyard tree thing we had in the house there weren't that many arguments about like how the design would work you know mm-hmm. <laughs> once once we established that they could tell us things that they didn't like um you know the the conversation you know went very well in terms of how the how the design worked and yeah it's just i mean i, I would like to talk to the to the kids and, and find out how um, yeah. they're, they're settling in and um yeah so they, they moved in a few months just before lockdown so we haven't really had that much time to kind of go over there and see how they settled in yeah uh, which we which we tend to do on a lot of our projects. You know, we kind of go back and, and revisit it and kind of ask them if there are any things that they regret or, or you know, how they like living in the house. And what kind of advice would you give based on this project for to other people that own a home and and are thinking? Because I can imagine myself living in this house. I know <laughs> I can <laughs> very easily. Yeah. Um, but what what advice would you give to somebody else that that would want to create something like this? I think that um, I think you should prepare to challenge yourself um, yeah. and challenge your architect. Um, you know, try and go on the journey with your architect. Try and uncover the reasons why um, they're doing things. Start, try work from first principles. Try get rid of Pinterest. Um, you know, and and search. You know about the things that make you happy outside of like this world of images. Um, mm-hmm. Think about experiences. Um, you know that that uh, you can embrace and that, that make you feel comfortable. You know, don't try and you know copy things out of magazines or out of um, pinches because there's a reason why they are that, that way. Um, you know, um, it's a reason why these things have been selected. So I think try get to know yourself through design, really, mm-hmm. um, if that's possible. I know it's quite a personal thing to say, but you can, I think. Yeah. Uh, you you know, if you if you're designing a, a, a bespoke house, you you can think about how you want to better your life or how you want things to work better, and what you enjoy. That's good advice. Um, right, Neil, I think we're ready for the the three questions now that I ask all guests. Um, and I'm going to start with the first one, which now I know you live in a home that you've designed yourself, kind of fairly recently <laughs> completed. Um, but I want you to sort of dish the dirt on the house if you can. Um, what's the one thing that really annoys you in your home? Yeah, so, so yeah, you mentioned that I redesigned my house. So, like, from a design point of view, like, nothing really because, obviously, we just remodeled it. And, um, but I think the two two main issues, one is uh, probably a kind of existential thing, like having two children really has jarred with my sense of identity that I'm a minimist. Um, no matter how much, <laughs> no matter how much storage we put into that house, like there's still dinosaurs, pirates, mermaids, and uh, like probably about twenty 
toy bunnies um, floating around. And yeah, so I just, I'm going to give up being a minimalist until they move out of home. And I think also just like the kitchen, like the kind of managerial aspects of the kitchen where I do the most of the cooking, occasionally the, the kind of cleaning and sanitation departments uh, that my wife's listening kind of comes in while I'm busy cooking um, to tidy up like while the chef is in full flow uh, without permission. So I think like kind of from a managerial point of view, there's kind of an overlap between kind of cooking and cleaning. How can, how can um, design resolve that issue? I could put a door in and just, just lock it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so no, you don't, you don't tidy while you're going along when you cook. No, no, I'm like a big kind of, you know, put all the ingredients out so I can see them. I mean, funny enough, I went up to my daughter's room the other day and I said to her, you know, why is your room not as tidy as it could be? She goes, it's a bit like your study and you can see everything and I can see everything. Uh, so I thought that was quite a quite an insightful insightful answer. So, yeah, so I've realized that I'm not a, I'm not a minimalist, you know, mm-hmm. I like the children. So, but yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really annoy me. It just, it's changed my view of myself, really. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and in the interview, you've actually referenced quite a few kind of interesting homes that you visited and that have inspired you. But if you could maybe pick one home that you visited that's inspired you and, and kind of explain why. Well, it's interesting because the last interview you had was with uh, Hector Barossa, and he said something also really insightful about, you know, how we bombarded with this world of images. Uh, and his touchstone is, is Louis Barragan, um, Professor Louis Barragan. And I feel the same thing. But one of the most intense experiences I've had was visiting uh, Pasali by uh, Jan Utzen in Mallorca, uh, which is a house he built for himself um, after he left uh, building the opera house. And what I actually love about it is it's so visceral. You know, it's made out of, of one material, you know, the stone. Um, the way it's orientated with these little courtyards and how it deals with the, the climate and the, the microclimate of being on a cliff edge and the heat. And what's really interesting about it for me, it was, you know, I'd studied it for so long living in Australia, and I was like, oh, I can't wait to get to see this house. It's going to be amazing. And on the day we went there, it was like 42 degrees. Um, my kids my kids were going nuts. And we were probably there for about an hour. And I remember walking along it and touching all the walls and kind of measuring out the columns. And the memory of being in that house is still with me. You know, that just the, the sense of heat, the, the materiality, the way it feels like it was carved out. Um and it was just so unexpected in terms of a scale. Um, so I think just, you know, it's, it's part ruin, part Acropolis. I don't know if you've, if you've been there, um, no. but, it, but it's got this, like these, the bedrooms are quite separate from the living areas, which um, are around the U-shaped courts. And then the, the, the bedrooms are kind of strung like this necklace of beads along the kind of cliff edge mm-hmm. with these apertures opening out of the garden. But the space is, so monumental and humble at the same time and it's it's an enigma really i wish i could have spent more than an hour there um but i wonder if if i would remember it so strongly if i really yeah. you know I, I don't know it's uh, i intend to go back one day yeah, on, a, on a cooler day i think and if you could choose any designer to design you a home who would you pick Oh, that's easy. Uh, I would love to live in a house by um, Marcio Kogan of um, Studio MK27. Uh, he's a Brazilian designer. Most of his work uh, is in the jungle uh, in, in parts of Brazil. And just the forms are so simple. You know, they're mostly horizontal bars uh, elevated above the ground. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing 
uh, complicated about it. And I just, I just like the way the houses are completely permeable. You know, that all the doors kind of slide back, and you know, there's, it's almost like anti-architecture. It's almost like this kind of sense of enscarpment. You know, uh, I mean, I, I know they're incredibly finesse structures and and things like that, but. Um, I just finished reading a book about the house called The Joyful House, um, about how he designs them. And it's actually quite complex about how he kind of sets up these bars and, and how they relate to the landscape. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to live in a, in a Studio MK27 house. Well, Neil, thank you very much. Um, fascinating to find out more about Sunslice House, but also about your kind of influences and your dedication to uh, – to the cause and, and studying other architects is fantastic no thank you very much for having me it's been great I, I love this podcast thanks Neil thank you for listening to this episode if you'd like to find out more about Neil DeShaco Architects then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com where you will find links to their work and other interesting articles And try out the podcast Instagram to see work of all my guests and sneak previews of upcoming guests. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give me a review on iTunes or whichever platform you are listening on, as it's a great way to help other people find the podcast. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening.